All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. So first things first, I am a black preacher. All right. So there we go. Let's give it to you. Which means that the way I know that you're understanding what I'm saying is every once in a while I hear, amen, there you go. Just something that lets me know that I'm not putting you to sleep and that you are right. So if you're all right with that, let me just get some practice. Somebody say, amen. Yeah. All right, all right. Now I know that you can do it, which means I'm going to be expecting to hear a couple of amens every once in a while. Don't make me ask for the walls and the lights to amen me. I want to get it from you. Now, um, beyond being a pastor, uh, thank you, Kim, for the invitation and the opportunity to, to share with you guys a little bit of my story and a little bit uh, of what God has done in my life. Uh, I do want to say that I'm not only a, a, a pastor, but I'm also a resident of a neighborhood called Inglewood on the south side of Chicago, as well as a community activist and organizer in the neighborhood, um, and as well as an, an artist, a uh, hip-hop artist and a visual artist, and do a lot of different things in the arts. And so typically what I do is I like to start off with a, a piece before I get started, just to kind of set the mood for what we might be talking about, as well as to give you a glimpse of kind of just my reality, okay? So, um, because I don't want to sh shock you too hard, I'm going to do a, a, a lighter piece that I, I did. <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> Which uh, is actually called Life As I Do. And um, uh, it's just a reminder that whenever you actually come in contact with Christ, whenever you come in contact with the Lord, that actually should, some things should change. Amen? Y'all getting it? That we should not come in contact with God and then everything stays the same. Our lives should look different. Everything about us should look different because that's the kind of God we serve. So it just simply says, who can fathom you and Adam, a tandem with no chasm? See, to humans, it's a phantasm, a plan that is present-day fantasy. But if we can see you higher lifted up, like Isaiah after the death of Isaiah, it provides a desire for life's priorities to rearrange, for you're beautiful, immutable, truthful, you don't change. Like Mary J, you are everything and everything is you. Only you could bring dreams of Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 before we took our visit to the tree and disobediently dissed your open decree. Ironically, you used the tree to pay the fee and free we who couldn't see our sin-bought slavery. You're the real hover. Forget the song. You make me cry. As I rewind my mind to February 1999 when you opened my blind eyes and told me to draw nigh to you, and you would draw nigh to me, and now I just can't go on living life as I do. So the mindset is that when you come in contact with God, your whole life should change. You don't just start going to church. You don't just start reading your Bible. But your whole life changes. You see people differently. You see places differently. You start thinking differently. You spend your money differently. Everything changes because you've come in contact with a God that completely transforms. So one Sunday morning, on my way to my church, I take the same route every Sunday morning. I go out of my way 
and drive past my church, which is only three blocks from my house, and go all the way to the expressway to pick up the Sunday morning newspaper from my friend Renee, who sells the Sunday morning newspaper at the Day of Ryan every Sunday morning. And this Sunday morning, any Sunday morning was a good day. I had me a you know, tea and going in, and I get my newspaper and I pick it up and I look at it. And on the front page of the Sunday Chicago Sun-Times, it says, a good day in Inglewood. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm a hip hop guy. So it reminded me of like the Ice Cube song, like today was a good day. And I was like, hey. <laughs> but. The strange thing about this A Good Day in Inglewood was underneath the big bold letters, there was a picture of a lady who had been experiencing assault and battery in a domestic uh, dispute and, and blood was gushing from her mouth and she was crying and they blacked out everything around her. And all you saw was this lady screaming with blood gushing from her mouth and above her in red letters, it said A Good Day in Inglewood. And I said to myself, Is this the way they're going to portray my, my neighborhood on a Sunday morning as we prepare to worship God? But what it brought me to was, was it reminded me. It reminded me why so many of the people in my community feel the way we do about where we live. Because we are bombarded with images, bombarded with media, bombarded with our own experiences that try to tell us that the places we live, the places that God has placed us, those places where our families are from, are places to escape, not places to live. And because of that bombardment, we grow up with those mentalities. Now, what I decided to do today was to write a letter. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, and the one I'm going to spend time with today, is in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 6. So when you get there, you know, in the black church, you say, when you get there, say, I got it. But what I love about this passage is because you got this, this story of, 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 of Israel acting a fool, not doing the things they're supposed to do. God gets upset, sends them into exile in Babylon. But when they get there, because, you know, you know how we get a little arrogant when we're God's people. We go, well, God's mad at us, but he won't, he won't punish us too long. So they, the prophets start coming to them and saying, hey, 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 don't worry, don't worry. We won't be here long. Just, just relax. You know, God will never leave. I mean, he, we've been waiting for the promised land. Why would he leave us out here in Babylon for a long time? Don't worry, we'll be home soon. And then Jeremiah is told by God to write this letter that completely contradicts all the other prophets that have written to Israel. And so the letter reads like this. You there? Got it? Got it? There it is. All right. Starting at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Somebody say, I have sent. All right, good. That's how I keep you awake. Now, from Jerusalem to Babylon. First thing he says is, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So this passage is not at all what Israel wanted to hear. They were expecting to hear, hey, don't worry. I know I was upset at you, but you know I can't stay mad long. You'll be back in no time. Just deal with your punishment and I'll get you back home in no time. But no, he said, no, 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 no. Grab a Snickers. <laughs> Not going anywhere for a while. And so I thought, what better way, as I try to explain to the people in my community why I live the way I live, why we do the things the way we do them at Canaan Community Church, like, I wanted to explain it to them, so let me write them a letter myself. But the first thing I have to help you realize is because of things like what happened on that Sunday morning with the newspaper, many of the people, including myself, that grow up in neighborhoods like Inglewood, consider themselves living in exile as well. And I'll show you what I mean. We consider ourselves living in a place where nobody else would want to live. We consider ourselves living in places that the rest of society says, you stuck there, huh? That's too bad. So we start believing that we live in a place that's only good to escape. And it starts to breed anger. Because like a kid like me starts asking myself, well, what did I ever do to you, God? What did I ever do to you that I had to be born here? What did I ever do to you that this had to be where I'm from? What did I ever do to you that you had to place me here? But it was interesting. Because God responded to those questions in a far different way than I imagined. And so I want to read my letter to you, but I also want to take you through my story. So let us start like this. To my fellow exiles... A member of my community once told me there are only two kinds of people that live in Inglewood. They are people who are here because they have nowhere else to go and people who are here because there's nowhere else they'd rather be. That made a lot of sense to me. I mean, just about anyone who had seemed or been deemed to be successful had moved away never to return. Many of the people who stayed around would sit on their porch talking about the good old days, wondering how things had gotten to the point they are now and saying stuff like, what's wrong with these kids? Well, I stand before you today as one who's actually fallen into both categories. Once a young man itching to get as far away as possible from where I was born, and hoping never to return. But now I'm a grown man who loves Inglewood passionately and could not imagine calling anywhere else home. How, do, how does one make such a drastic change? Like, what causes such a 180-degree turn in a young man's perception? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. See, our brother Jeremiah wrote a letter similar to the one I'm writing you today. And in this letter in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, he writes words that completely changed the way I looked at what I considered an exilic situation. 
It helped me understand a little bit of what God was trying to reach through what I thought was unfortunate circumstances. He begins simply by saying, build houses and live in them. Now, I received two lessons from this opening sentence, both of which changed my life forever. Now, I got more in the letter, but y'all mind if I step off the letter for a second and tell you a story? All right. So I grew up in Inglewood, but the goal was to go as far away as possible. He told you I went all the way to Tuskegee, Alabama. I was trying to go as far as possible from Chicago, Illinois as possible so that I would never have to come back. One day I was going to make it big, get six figures, move my mama with me, and we was going to be all right. Senior year of college, right before I graduate, my mom has a stroke. So I end up going back to Chicago, moving in with her. I said, I can practice architecture there, no big deal. God allows me to get a nice job working in an architecture firm, get there, do it for about six months before I realize, you know what, I hate this job. Quit, find myself in Chicago, back on the south side, living in Inglewood with my mama with no job. My worst nightmares had come true. So through some crazy circumstances, I found myself within the next four years actually pastoring a church in the neighborhood. That's a story that one day hopefully will be in a book that you have to bother to hear about. <laughs> but once I started pastoring this church, it was some things that that really started to resonate with me. It was like, how can I be here preaching in this church in my neighborhood and, and, and I don't even feel good about it? Like, I don't even want to live here. I don't, I don't, I, I got to change that. So I went to my wife. We hadn't been married long. You know, we had, she was pregnant with our second child. You know, we had one that was only about three years old. And I said to her, babe, if I'm going to pastor in Inglewood, I feel like we need to live in Inglewood. And she looked at me and she said, I'm glad you feel that way. You moving by yourself? I said, come on, babe, like this, this is, I really feel God speaking to me. Like we need to be in Inglewood with the people so that when I'm preaching, I can preach with passion and understand what, what, well, you know, what my, my neighbors feel and all that. She was like, that's good. I'm not moving. I said, okay, I got you. So we are, we're in a like two bedroom apartment, you know, that after college apartment. And I said to her, what if we could find a house? Nice spacious house, kids that have a backyard, you know, would that be all right? Okay. So I find a nice house in, in, in Inglewood that actually was owned by an older couple that had been living there for decades. And so it was decked out. They had the nice flowers in the front, the lamppost, the bay window, and, you know, the old school mirrored wall in the living room. You know, it's just, they had been there a while. This house was, so we got there. She walked in. This is nice. I said, see, this could all be yours. <laughs> if you just move to Inglewood with me. So... We moved to Inglewood, not because I had a great car, but because my wife accepted the house. So we, we move, we get there, and, but we make some clear rules. We moved in at 3 a.m. Everything had to be wrapped up in blankets. You don't want people to see you moving your flat screen TV in. We, we made a pact that we will not use the front door. So we actually locked our front door and put a padlock on it and said, we only come in through the back. 
We got a privacy fence. They had a two-car garage. And so, you know, it was great. You know, I, I was pastoring. I was teaching school. I was doing all these things. And we would go back and forth, come through our back door and skip through the backyard with the pretty flowers. And everything was wonderful. We lived in our neighborhood for about six months. It was great. You know, we were good. My kids said, Daddy, let's play in the backyard. Yay! Everything was great. One Sunday, one Wednesday night, we're coming home from Bible study. You know, I grab my daughters, get them out the car. Come on, babies, let's go in the house. You know, the perfect little couple. And then we get to the door, and right as I get to the door, reach for the handle in the back door, and gunshots ring out like it's loud, like they were right next to me. I mean, this was so scary. That's not stuff I grew up with. It's not stuff that happens all the time. This was not normal. This was not an everyday situation. They can call a Chirac all you want. When you hear gunshots, it is scary. And so I, I, I like jump on top of my kids and I tell my wife to get down. And I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? And I look up and I'm like, God, what the heck? You told me, come on, man. So I go, we get inside and I peer around to look out the front window and I can see police sirens and lights already and ambulance. And I'm like, it's right here. Tell my family to stay there and I walk to the front of the house and we had a lamp in our little bay window that was on a timer, you know, so nobody know when you're home and when you're not, you know, that I peered over the lamp and looked out, and I could see that the shooting was right next door. Literally the next house over. And I'm like, oh, no, we got to pack up and move. This is crazy. I'm not. I say, okay, I need to know what's going on before I get all irrational. So I take the padlock off the door, you know, blow the spider webs off, off the front door, and open up and go outside. And I got two options. I got the house on this side where the shooting happened, and I got a house on this side that actually looks just like mine. The lady that lived over there uh, was best friends with the lady that owned the house before me, and they got the same lamppost, same flowers. You can picture it, right? Older couple, same house right next to each other. All right. So I go out the door and I look and I go, okay, I'm gonna ask her what happened. So I walk down and I, I haven't ever really met her before. You know, we only go through the back door. So I go and I say, uh, excuse me. And she looks, she says, oh, hey, baby, how are you? I'm good, is everything all right? She's like, yes, are you good? I'm like, yeah. She's like, whoo. <sighs> that was scary. Did you hear that? I was like, yes. It was like, it was right next to me. I didn't know what to do. She's like, "Ooh, pastor, I tell you, these things don't happen over here. Now, first of all, I stepped back and I said, pastor, how does this lady know I'm a pastor? I have never spoken to her one time. But you know, you brush it off. Anybody can find out you're a pastor. You can go on the internet for that, right? So, you know, you just got, yeah, it was fine. She's like, whoo, yeah, that's crazy. She's like, this stuff don't happen. She was like, oh, how's the babies? How's Michelle? How's Jasmine? How's Jade? <laughs> They're okay. Thanks for asking. It's cool. I'm like, yeah. She's like, who? Oh, she looked like, well, she said, oh, God, you guys are just getting home. Right? It's Wednesday night. You're coming from Bible study. <laughs> She's like, yeah, because, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays, you usually get home about 3.30, 4 o'clock. When you get home from school, right, you pick the baby? Yes. It's like, okay, um, can you tell me what happened? She was like, baby, I don't really know. I came out a few minutes ago. She looked and she said, well, um, why don't you just go ask? Now let me paint the picture for you. Remember, this house looks just like mine. Flowers, lampposts, bay windows. House on this side, not so much. The porch is leaning this way. There's absolutely no grass in front. It's about 10 guys on the porch playing dominoes all the time. Yeah. She's like, go ask them. And I was like, Go ask them. She's like, yeah, just go. 
You sure? Maybe they're nice people. Go ahead. And I, you know, hey guys, um, is everybody all right? They turn around. Oh, hey, Pastor. Yeah, man, everything's good. <laughs> just let it go, right? Just, okay. So what happened, man? We were just out here playing cards like we normally do. Some guys came across the gangway across the street and just shot up the house. We don't bother anybody. We haven't done anything. We don't know why, why that would happen. I'm like, so that's not normal for this block. He's like, no, man, you've been over here for a long time and nothing happened. I've been living here my whole life, man. We know everybody. We run this block. Oh, okay. Well, what do you mean you run this block? They're like, man, we know everybody. We take care of the kids. You know, there's always kids outside playing. You know, we take care of it. I'm like, well, what do you mean you take care of it? And they're like, yo, tell them about the car. I'm like, yeah, tell them about the car. Yeah, all right, Pastor, man, it's crazy. So there's this guy who used to ride up and down the block, zooming. I mean, like doing 40, 50, 60 miles an hour down our little residential street. We got kids out here playing, and so we playing dominoes, and we yell, hey, man, you better slow down. But, you know, he was in the car, so he ain't really paying attention to us. So he just, you know, keep on driving. Then he started doing it on purpose. And we, we was like, all right, all right. I said, well, what y'all do about it? He said, we caught him. What you mean you caught him? It's like, oh, easy. You know, it's a stop sign right here. So he pulled up to the stop sign before, you know, one of us came out, stopped in front of the car. Like, man, look, you better slow down on our block. We don't play that. It was just one person. You know, he didn't, he didn't really trip over that. So, but he got angry. Man, if you don't get out of my way, get out the car, man, you better get out of my way before I run you over. As soon as he steps out the car, they said about 40 dudes came running out. Oh, he tries to get back in the car to drive away. They said, uh, we started rocking this car back and forth. I said, well, what happened? They said, shoot, we flipped it over. <laughs> oh. <Amen>. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yo, <laughs> that's not how I would have handled that situation. <laughs> but you know what? I ain't never felt more safe than I have right now. Michelle, bring the babies outside and meet our new neighbors. Come on out, get them out, get on out here, meet these nice people. You don't play in the backyard no more, right here in the front, where these guys can see you. Right? Because what I learned in that very moment was, yes, we were living in Inglewood. Yes, we had a house. Yes, we were walking in and out, but we had not built the house. We had not moved in. These people knew my schedule, knew my name, knew my children, knew everything about me, and I had never spoken to them once. Who did I think I was? It was time to build a house. To really be. And now that I found out who my neighbors were, I was far more safe than paying ADT for a security system. It wasn't until I moved in and really recognized what it meant to be in community and met people who lived differently, thought differently, acted differently than I did, but made me feel more safe. It was in community that I found myself. It was in community that I understood. I wasn't better than anybody. I think I was. Then the next thing it said out to build houses was live in them. I love the way the message paraphrases it. <laughs> it says, build houses, right? Don't just live in them. The message says, build houses and make yourself at home. That made a lot of sense. I thought I was moving in to help something. No, 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 no. 
It says make yourself at home because in other words, you are going to be here for a while. You are not coming to change things just because you moved in. I wasn't going to make my neighborhood into something else because me and my family had moved in. No, 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 no. Jeremiah reminds us that God is not telling us to move in places so we can change anything. He's telling us to move in so we can become a part of what is going on and truly understand what it means to live in diversity. How do I know? Well, the next part of the letter says plant gardens and eat what they produce. I soon realized in exile I was going to learn how to be a gardener. Now, I don't have a green thumb in my body. Put a plant in my house and it's dead. So I had to figure out what it meant because there was only so many bags of flaming Hots with meat and cheese and like hug juices I could eat before my family was going to die. <laughs> Yet he was saying, eat what's produced in my community. And I was walking in the store seeing unhealthy food and nothing but snack cakes and no grocery stores. And I was going, God, are you trying to kill me? He said, no, don't miss it. I told you to plant a garden. So I had to figure out what that meant. What it meant was we had to take command over what food was offered in our community. It meant that we, when I moved in and I, and, I, and I understood what it meant to be in community, that now I could work along with those people who I've now met, who I got relationship with, who taught me to live in a different way, who welcomed me into their community so that we can take control over what was in our neighborhood. So we didn't have a grocery store. We didn't have anything with fresh vegetables and fruit. And so what did we do? We went to someone who did. So we started our own co-op that meets in my church every Monday. Those people who do have vehicles, those people who can go outside the neighborhood, who can travel somewhere else, who are not elderly waiting for someone to, to, uh, who, who needs somewhere close. We brought the food back to our neighborhood. Everyone put money in to create a co-op, and then we shop right in the fellowship hall at Canaan Community Church. And after that, through this wonderful organization that my friend Leroy used to be the executive director of called Mission Year. There's a young man that came into my neighborhood named Phil who saw the vision that, you know what? We need to have a place to sit down and eat too. Phil came to my church and said, man, I see all the work y'all doing, man. Could y'all help me open up this, this cafe? We don't have any sit-down restaurants in one of the largest neighborhoods in the city. People need a place to sit, eat, laugh, joke, and have good food. I say, yeah, we'll help. Tell us what to do. And so now, we, we, we don't have to settle for hug juices and flaming hots. Right? Now there's other gardens that have opened up. And our co-op can now walk over to, to, to the wood farm right on 59th and Woods and get fresh vegetables that we bring to our co-op. And, and it's grown three blocks away. But that's because we decided that we needed to take control of our food. Now, in the fall, our city is caught up. And they decided to put a Whole Foods in our neighborhood. That's what's up. Appreciate it. While we're thankful for the Whole Foods, we wasn't waiting on it. This is our neighborhood. But that's what happens when you build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
Now, if I'm honest with you, because you know, my, my time is ticking, the next part of Jeremiah's letter really troubled me. Now, I'm going to get personal. I got two little daughters, I told you before, Jasmine and Jade. Now, they're not little no more, but I'm going to call them little forever. Jasmine's 12, Jade is 9. This, this passage says, take wives, have children, and then take your daughters and give them to men in exile. Multiply there. Don't decrease. I said, wait a minute. Hold up. Now, I was with you all the way up to this point, Jeremiah. You had me. I was all good until you put my kids in the conversation. Now, I, I, I told God, God, have you seen the choice of brothers out here? Like I opened my curtain, I pointed out at the guy in front of the liquor store, and I said, really? So you're expecting me to give my daughters to this guy? I said pretty arrogantly, so God, you really want me to give my girls to one of these brothers in Inglewood? Okay. I went to my wife, told her this is so unfair. There's got to be another way to look at this passage. There's got to be another interpretation. Maybe I'm not exegetically sound here. And she looked at me and she said, you're so stupid. <laughs> Just made me more angry. Oh, so now I'm stupid. Like, I'm really having a moment here. I can't figure this out. I don't know what's going on here. It's telling me to give my daughters to men from Inglewood with their pants down here, saying they're going, what's up, Pastor Jay? No! So I looked at her and I said, okay, Miss Theologian, who knows everything about the Bible, who's been to seminary. It's not like I've been to seminary or anything. You, you tell me what the passage is saying there. <laughs> and as a true sister would, she looked at me and she said, stupid. <laughs> Have you forgotten that you're from Inglewood? Oh, yeah. Somehow I have forgotten that just 10 years earlier, there was some man looking out his window at me with my pants down, big book back on, headphones on, listening to Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> going, really? But the same God that stepped into my life, transformed me from the inside out, made me think differently, act differently, move differently, care about people differently, is the same God working in Inglewood today. So who do I think I am? No, wake up. The same God that changed me is the same God that will work on these young men. But guess what else I learned? I truly learned it. It hit me like a ton of bricks. If my daughters are going to find a good man in Inglewood, then I need to be investing some of my time in these young men I see. Instead of walking past them going, pull your pants up. I need to spend some time with them, teaching them what it means to be a man. just walk past and shake my head. I had a vested interest in how these brothers turned out. Right? Now, I don't know who or if my daughters will choose a mate one day, but I promise you this much. I will be involved in the process of making sure there's a good crop to choose from. Because that's what it means. 
to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and eat what they produce, to, to have sons and daughters and marry them and multiply. Once I understood this, the next part of the letter made perfect sense. And it's with this new understanding that I can close out for you. Jeremiah goes on to say, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It made perfect sense. If I care about exile, then I care about myself. Because when exile does well, I do well. It made sense. When we truly moved into Inglewood and got to know our neighbors and decided to make ourselves at home to really move in, guess who felt more safe? Us. Once we started the co-op in our neighborhood and opened the Kusanya Cafe along with our neighbors, guess who else was receiving healthy food? Us. Right? When, 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 when I recognized my responsibility to the young men in my neighborhood and stopped seeing them as thugs, but young men created in the image of God, guess who benefits when one of these young men truly understands who they are and created in the image of God? Us. It hit me like a ton of bricks. God's not asking us to move into Babylon to be its savior. No. He already took care of that with Jesus. He's asking us to move there because our future is intimately tied into those around us. Because when one suffers, we all suffer. When one prospers, we all prosper. So yes, God commands us in verse seven to seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is great. All of us agree with this verse. The problem for us is not verse 7. It answers the easy question. What do you want me to do? You know, we like to fix stuff. What do I do, God? It's not verse 7 that's the problem. It's verses 4 through 6, which answers the terrifying question of where do you want me to do it and with whom do you want me to do it? It's easy to, to seek the justice and, and, and the welfare of the city if I can be with the people just like me. It's easy to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with my God if I don't ever have to be around anybody that makes me uncomfortable. My fellow exile. Yeah, you. God has commanded us to love the people and places of exile in our own cities. But guess what? Not from a distance from within. Therefore, I close this letter with a challenge to you. <laughs> Will you stop only asking God what he wants you to do and begin asking him where he might want you to do it and with whom? Will you stop only asking God what you can do to change the world? And start asking God where and with whom in the world you might be changed the most. Will you stop asking what will make the biggest impact and start asking where and with whom in the world will the biggest impact be made on you? Stop asking God what's the most comfortable fit for you in ministry. Start asking where you can go to be with those who make you feel the most uncomfortable. 
For nowhere in Scripture has God ever called us to be comfortable. So lastly, my fellow exiles, whether you're living in rural Bend or inner city Portland, stop only asking God what you can do to be successful. And start asking God where you can go and from whom you can learn in order to be more faithful. For God never told us to be successful. He's only asked us to be faithful. Can you be faithful when change is not happening? Can you be faithful when transformation is not occurring? Can you be faithful when really the only thing changing is you? Can you be faithful when you move in thinking that everything's going to be different and everything's the same and you haven't moved? We're all exiles, you know, waiting to return to New Jerusalem. But until then, build houses and make yourself at home. Until then, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Until then, create families, seek friends, be intentional about being around people who will make you uncomfortable, who think differently than you, who would vote differently than you, who would spend their money differently than you, who would be a different experience for you. Because if you seek the welfare of the world in which he has placed you, it is in that welfare that you will find your own. So I say to you, Antioch, will you not be a place that's only about what you can do? to start being people who care about where God wants you to do it and with whom he would want you to do it with. Grace and peace signing off. Pastor Jonathan Brooks, your fellow exile.